The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, it's March Madness. Anyone been following the tournament so far? Following? No basketball fans in the room? We got four of us, four of us. Well, March Madness, by March Madness, I mean an annual basketball tournament, uh, college basketball tournament. Um, and look, one of, one of the traditions that goes along with March Madness is what? What are we all going to fill out? We're all going to fill out our bracket. And if you're like me, your bracket was busted before the end of the first day of the tournament. Before the end of the first day, the, the first weekend of the tournament is incredible because you got basketball all day Thursday, all day Friday, all day Saturday, all day Sunday. By midday Thursday, I kid you not, my bracket was toast. Um, and, uh, and, and, and still, though, still, I would argue that March Madness is one of the greatest sporting events out there. And one of my favorite things about March Madness is actually not the bracket. Um, that's one of my least favorite things because uh, it always goes poorly for me. But one of my favorite things about the tournament are, are upsets and Cinderella stories. Who's watching for the upsets? Who's watching for the Cinderella stories? That, that's, that's me. And this year, we've, we've had our fair share. Right This year, number one seed, Purdue, was knocked off by a 16 seed. The Knights of a school I can't even pronounce, um, Fairley, Fairley, Farley, see, there we go, Farley Dickinson University. 15 seed Princeton made it to the Sweet 16 before they were taken down by Creighton. And now we have nine-seed Florida Atlantic in the final four. It's incredible. Upsets. Cinderella stories. Now, there are a lot of factors that play into these upsets. How do these upsets happen? Why do they happen? They happen every single year. Why? Well, one of the reasons, among many reasons, is surely overconfidence, right? Surely it's, it's overconfidence. Teams, sometimes the best teams... Sometimes the number one seeds even are prone to pridefully, they're, they're prone to pridefully overestimating themselves and or underestimating their opponents. So they, they overestimate themselves and they underestimate their opponents. So to use Paul's words from our passage today, they think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And we've seen this this year over and over and over, over and over and over this year, we, we've, we've seen this happen. The, the, the prideful way, this prideful way of thinking can be a dangerous thing for a team's tournament hopes. And as we see in the scriptures, it, it's a dangerous thing for the church as well. This is why Paul is going to give the Christians in the church in Rome instructions for how to avoid this way of thinking and instead to think with what he calls sober judgment. Now, if you remember last week, we began Romans chapter 12. We, we closed the book on Romans chapters 9 through 11. And last week, we, we focused in on the first two verses of chapter 12. 
where we see Paul uh, making a fairly significant shift in focus. Remember in chapters 9 through 11, Paul did some heavy theological lifting as he dealt with the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles in the fold of Christ's people. Chapter 12 then, in chapter 12, Paul gets practical as he calls the Romans to give their whole selves to God. We, we saw that last week. He tells the Romans, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do not be conformed to this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that brings us then to our passage this morning where Paul begins to tell the Romans, along with us, about the specifics of how verses 1 and 2 should play themselves out in our lives. Specifically, what, practically, what, what does it look like for us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice? What does it look like for us to live counter to the culture? What does it look like for you and for me to be transformed by the renewal of our minds? What does it look like for you and I, for our church body collectively and individually members of it, to give our whole selves to God? Well, this is, this is where Paul begins as, as we get more specific. He says in verse 3 of our passage, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. Now, note that he, he's talking to everyone among the Roman church. He's not just speaking to Jews. He's not just speaking to Gentiles. At points in time in, in this letter, he's, he's switched back and forth, hasn't he? He's focused in on one group, then the other. But he's, he's speaking to everyone among the church, and he's speaking to every Christian among us here today. His, his instructions are here clearly for all Christians in the church, and they begin in this way. He says that you ought not to think... Ha, Ought not to think more highly than he ought to think, not to think of himself, excuse me. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. And this is really the crux of the matter for Paul in our passage. This is his aim. I would argue that this is the main idea of the passage. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but rather with sober judgment. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. Why does Paul start with the specifics that he does? After Romans 12, 1 through 2, he could have, he could have started anywhere, right? He, he could have given any instructions. But this is where he begins, calling them to not think of themselves more highly than they ought. Well, remember, this is, again, this is the church in Rome, a church that was comprised of both Jew and Gentile believers. And, and we've seen already how this Jewish-Gentile divide, so to speak, in the church, this, this collective makeup of the church can cause rifts between the two. We, we've seen that it can lead to a sense of superiority of, of one group over another. For, for example, we, we saw in Romans 11, 
Verse 20, this isn't in the slides, just listen in. He's, he says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. These are Paul's words to the Gentile believers in Rome. So do not become proud, but fear. Why would he warn them not to become proud unless that was a significant temptation for them? Five verses later, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Do not become proud, lest you become wise in your own sight. Paul begins here instructing the Romans not to, be, not to think of themselves more highly than they ought because the environment in the church is, is, is such that this is, a, this is a, a significant temptation to which they are prone. And so what, what Paul was going to do for the, the Romans, what he's going to do for us this morning is to give us some instructions on how to think with what he calls sober judgment. And he has three points for us. Number one, he's going to tell us, be humbled by grace. Be humbled by grace. Number two, be unified in identity. And then thirdly, be confident in diversity. Be humbled by grace, be unified in identity, and be confident in diversity. Now notice, if we begin with our, our first point here and being humbled by grace, Paul begins with a negative command followed immediately by a positive command. I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, negative command, but to think with sober judgment, positive command. So what Paul is, is doing here, he's exhorting the Romans not to give themselves over to an exaggerated sense of self. He, he's warning them against a, a puffed up, bloated, and inflated sense of, of one's own status, of one's own gifting and ability or, or power and, and influence, of one's own need for recognition one's own sense of, of self-importance and, and greatness in the church and beyond. He's warning them against this need to take up space in the room. He's warning them against the sin of, of pride and of arrogance. And this, this phrase in his positive command is really helpful in, in illustrating his point. He, he tells them to exercise sober judgment. To think with sober judgment. It's, it's as if he's saying, don't be drunk on self, but be sober in humility. Don't be drunk on self, but be sober in humility. You see, it's, it's possible to become so consumed with oneself that, that you almost become intoxicated, that, that you almost become drunk. This is what happens when you overconsume, when you overconsume alcohol. And this is what happens when you overconsume self. And I don't know if you've hung out with an intoxicated person anytime recently, but how good are we at estimating our own self-importance and value and worth? How, how, how good is one in doing that when he or she is intoxicated? 
not very good. And in fact, it's, it's not until they sober up a bit that they're able to do that effectively. And look, we live in a culture that's obsessed with self, don't we? I mean, this could be a message uh, all its own. Our culture, we're, we're obsessed with self-reliance. We're obsessed with defining ourselves and defining our truth and living out our truth. We're obsessed with self-care, being authentic to ourselves. I'm not saying that these are all necessarily categorically bad, by the way. Our social media feeds give, give us a platform to put ourself and our greatest attributes and our, our greatest achievements on display with the promise that, that everyone's reading and checking it out. Our smartphones serve our every want, our every desire, and our every need. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self. And look, we'd be naive to think that as Christians that we're immune to any of the things that I just listed off. On top of the fact that we know that consumerism is extremely common in the church. It has everything to do with, with self and self-centeredness. And it, an obsession with self. This is why, for example, it's not unusual for someone to choose a church based solely sometimes on a factor such as worship style or perceived quality of worship music. It's, it's this fixation upon self. This, this, is, this is why jealousy runs rampant in the church. Because we're, we're consumed with self. This is why we see pride and arrogance and looking down upon others. That's why we see abusive, narcissistic leadership. And as we'll see later, even our proneness to despair in a sense of false humility can oftentimes be the result of this prideful obsession with self. And so what is Paul's answer to this temptation to think of oneself more highly than he or she Ah, well, he says the, the solution, the, the antidote, is to think. By the way, this, this word, this verb, think, is a really interesting word choice in, in light of Paul's previous comments about being transformed by the renewal of your mind. His answer is to think with sober judgment. But that's not, that's not all he says, is it? He continues. He says we're, we're to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, it's, it's worth noting at this point that there are disagreements as to what exactly Paul is getting at here when he talks about this uh, measure of faith that God has assigned. And, and there are lots of nuanced positions and interpretations. I want to try to boil it down to two very broad categories of interpretation for this particular phrase. The first is that God has assigned or apportioned different measures or amounts or quantities of faith, that is, trust in God, to each individual Christian. God has apportioned to you a different amount than he has to you. So we, we might be talking about faith in Christ in a, a, a general, broad 
sense, or we might be talking about the different spiritual gifts and one's faith in exercising these gifts. And so the, the one position says that, that God distributes different measures of this faith. The second view is that the measure of faith that Paul is talking about here is a standard measure of the basic Christian faith that all Christians receive in the same amount or measure. Now, for what it's worth, to put my cards on the table, I lean in the direction of the former, of the first option, though I think you could make a strong case for the second as well. But I I would say that I think we can make an argument that from Scripture that Christians have different levels of faith. Take Romans 14.1, for example. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over his opinions. And so look, we don't have time to get into the nuance of this particular kind of interpretive issue, but here's what I want to propose to you this morning. Regardless of your position on this issue, I think the main point remains intact. It remains intact either way. And the main point is this. Faith is given Whether in equal measure or differing measures, faith is given as a gift from God. Full stop. Faith is given as a gift from God according to the grace of God. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Paul says to the Philippians, it has been granted to you that you should believe in Jesus. You see, this is, this is something that we need to, to get straight in our heads. If we're to walk in humility and not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. The sheer existence of faith in your heart is not due to your virtue. It's not due to your your faithfulness or your intelligence. It's not due to your own character or your own personality or your own power. It's given as a gift according to the grace of God. It's unearned, unmerited, undeserved, given to us by Jesus who... Though he was God, wasn't prideful or arrogant, but humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Look, even even the Apostle Paul realizes this about himself when he starts verse 3 with, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you. And so before Paul begins to give instructions about humility in the church and sober judgment, what does he say? Look, the grace given to me as an apostle, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about his apostleship and his apostolic authority. He's saying, I'm not speaking this to you because I'm awesome or because I have it all figured out. I'm speaking this to you according to the grace of God given to me. Paul knows that it's not based on his own worthiness or accomplishment, but Also, because of the unmerited, undeserved grace of God. Look, this means that even if God does apportion different amounts of faith to different believers in our body, none of us, 
Not even those of us with the strongest faith. Not even those among us who have the most, quote-unquote, impressive gifts. None of us can take credit for our faith. Nor can we take credit for the measure of faith that we have been given. One, comment, uh, one commentator, Thomas Schreiner, says this, What prevents pride from cropping up is a sober estimation of one's faith. And this sober estimation is based on the truth that God apportioned to each one a measure of faith. Who apportioned the measure? God apportioned the measure. God apportioned the measure. And a right understanding of the nature and source of grace and faith, brothers and sisters, is the antidote of sorts for pride and self-intoxication in your life and in mine and in the life of our collective body. But Paul doesn't stop here. He goes on to tell the Romans, secondly, to be unified in identity. To be unified in identity. And he does this by way of the use of a metaphor. And the metaphor that he uses is that of a body. Verse 4, he says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. And so he begins by highlighting the diversity that is present in the body. You see, a body has many members. A body has many parts. And these members and these parts all have different functions, right? So we have eyes to see. We have ears to hear. We can't get those two mixed up. Our eyes don't hear well and our, and our ears don't see well, right? There we go. We have arms and hands and legs and feet. This is how a body is, is made. There, there's great diversity among the parts of the body. And the body of Christ is the exact same way. It's the exact same way. The body of Christ has many different members. That is, many different individual Christians. And these members have different spiritual gifts. Something we'll see more about in the final three verses. And accordingly... With these different gifts, they have different functions. They, they serve different roles within the body. But Lord, look, the, the body, a, a body is, is more than a, a mere collection of a bunch of different body parts. I think I've talked about this in a previous sermon. If I have um, a, a bag full of a bunch of different body parts, that, is that what Paul is talking about here? That's sick, I know. But we're illustrating a point here, right? A, a body is more than just a detached collection of body parts, isn't it? You see, a body is a single unified whole. The members of a body are unified in a shared identity. A shared identity of the body. We have a shared identity, and that identity is that we are the body of Christ. And, and so Paul concludes in verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now, especially as, as Americans... 
we like to think of ourselves as, as belonging to ourselves, don't we? Don't we, we like to and, and tend to think of ourselves as our own? We live in a highly individualistic culture. And as, as Americans, those of us who are Americans in the room, I can only speak to, to our culture from experience. We're prone to thinking of ourselves more as, as we're prone to thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought and becoming intoxicated with self. Why? Because, because we're convinced so often that, that we belong to ourselves, that we are our own. But Paul says here that, that we don't belong to ourselves, do we? He says that we're one body in Christ. You see, there's no such thing as a living, thriving, autonomous body part detached from the body. There's no such thing as an I that says, I am my own and I belong to myself. That's, that's nonsensical. Because detached from the body, a part is destined to wither up and die, isn't it? So then there are a couple of implications that Paul gives us for our shared identity. The, the first is this. If you call yourself a Christian, then you belong to Christ. You don't belong to yourself, but first and foremost, you belong to Christ, who is the head of the body. We read elsewhere that apart from the head, you can do nothing. Not just a few things, not just some things. Apart from the head, you can do nothing. Jesus is your meaning. Jesus is your identity. Jesus is your various, Jesus is your very life. And your life is to be lived in submission to Him for His glory and not for your own. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means not to belong to yourself. It means to belong to Christ. But, but secondly, perhaps more controversially, it also means that you belong to one another. He says we're members one of another. Not, not only are we one body in Christ, but Paul also says here that we are individually members one of another. So to be pointed, that means that you don't belong to yourself, you belong to me. And I don't belong to myself. I belong to you. You want to talk about living counter to the culture that we, that we uh, find, ours in, uh, find ourselves in right now? You want to talk about not being conformed to the ways of the world, not being transformed by the world, this might be a good place to start. What a, what a radical idea this is, that I don't belong to myself, but I belong first to Christ and also to all of you. But look, this is, this is how a body operates, isn't it? Like, I'm left-handed. For most things, I am primarily left-handed. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that my left hand pops off to my right hand every now and again, right? And brags about how much better it is and how much more that it accomplishes in any given day, right? That doesn't make sense. I mean, first of all, hands don't talk. They need the mouth for that, right? Further illustrating my point. Neither does the right hand get jealous 
about all the wonderful abilities of my left hand. My right hand doesn't demand that I become ambidextrous. Does it? No. My left hand and my right hand, are you, they're united in their identity. They belong to one another. They belong to the entire body. And they exist in an interdependent relationship with one another. There's unity in the midst of, of diversity. And what the, left, what the left hand does doesn't just benefit the left hand, does it? But what the left hand does benefits the right hand too. And in fact, the entire body. So then, Look, we, we see this all over the New Testament as well. We, we, we could search the New Testament. We could uh, look at 1 Corinthians, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. We see this concept play out uh, when, when the New Testament talks about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given a, manifest, a manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good, is what Paul writes to the Corinthian church. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit, talking about spiritual gifts, for the common good. And then in verses 25 and 26, he says that members of the Corinthian church should care for one another. And that if one member suffers, who suffers? All members suffer. If one member suffers, the entire body suffers. Just like if, if one member benefits, all members benefit. If one member suffers, they all suffer together. And especially relevant to our passage this morning, if one member is honored, Paul tells the Corinthians, all rejoice together. When's the last time another member of the body was honored and instead of a bit of jealousy welling up inside you, when's the last time you put your arm around them and genuinely rejoiced along with them? When one member is honored, all rejoice together. Lord, uh, look, brothers and sisters, that's because your gifts don't belong to you. Your gifts belong to the body. Your gifts belong to the collective we. Your accomplishments, they don't belong to you. They belong to the collective body. And, and when you are honored, the body will rejoice together. It would be nonsensical for a member to be honored in a way that, that was cut off or completely separate from the body. And then at least seven times in 1 Corinthians 14, we see the word upbuild or the phrase build up. For example, in verse 12, he says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. This is ultimately what, what our, our spiritual gifts have been given to us for, for the edification of, for the building up of, for the, for the good of the entire body, not, not, not just to pad your ministry and volunteering resume. So don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment, recognizing that while you are one body in Christ and that you are individually members one of another. And, and, and yet, to be unified in this shared identity doesn't eliminate the existence 
of the many parts of the body, does it? And this isn't what the gospel does either. The gospel doesn't make us all the same in order to achieve and attain the goal of unity. It doesn't flatten out all the differences between us. It doesn't, it doesn't do this. This is the beauty of the gospel. It, it unites us together as one, but it also honors our diversity and calls us to, to be confident in action in light of it. So let's talk about confidence in diversity. Verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. These last three verses, this this is when the passage, I think, gets really practical. But, but not initially in the way that you might think or, or even hope when, when we, we first read these three verses. So I want to make a, a, a couple of initial remarks about these few verses before making uh, a, number of practical op- uh, a number of practical observations from them as well. Uh, first, first note that I, I want to make is this. While, while we see a number of gifts a number, number of spiritual gifts listed here. I won't be spending a lot of time breaking down or, or explaining what each of these gifts entails. And, and that's because I don't think the, the purpose or aim of these verses is to give us an explanation of the individual gifts. Remember, Paul laid out his main idea to the passage in verse 3. He says, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but think about yourself with sober judgment. This list uh, of gifts then should support that main idea, and I, I think it does. We'll see that, for example, in the way that they're arranged, in the way that they're grouped together. We have the gift of prophecy, followed by three additional gifts, and then another group of gifts after that. Secondly, in the same vein, this shouldn't be seen as an exhaustive list of spiritual gifts. That's not what Paul is setting out to do either. We see other gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. Uh, and, and, And frankly, Scripture as a whole doesn't tell us whether or not the collective list we have in the Scriptures is exhaustive. And so having said all that, I want to make six quick observations from these final three verses about confidence in our diversity. What does it look like to be humble and grace, united in our identity, but at the same time, confident in our diversity in such a way that doesn't promote and cause us to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Observation number one, you've been gifted according to God's grace. This is kind of like how we started in point number one. You see, you didn't receive your spiritual gift or gifts because of what you've done. 
nor were some withheld because of what you've failed to do. You, you've not received your gift or, gift or gifts because of what you've accomplished or failed to accomplish, because of your worthiness or lack thereof or, or because you're awesome or a little bit better than ordinary. Remember, we have our gifts. We're given our gifts according to the grace of God. That is, according to the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God. And and look, if, if we lose sight of this, we will lose our way and we'll be susceptible to the very pride that Paul is attempting to steer us away from in this passage. Observation number two. This includes you. This includes you. Paul said in verse 3, I say to everyone among you. I say to everyone among you. And so that means that if you're sitting here today and you're a Christian, you've trusted in Christ as Savior and Lord, if you've been indwelt by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that means that you too have been gifted with at least one spiritual gift by the grace of God, and that that, and, and that that spiritual gift is, in fact, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. This includes you. And this is, this is where I point out that pride doesn't always take the form of arrogance. Sometimes pride looks the exact opposite. I wonder if you've ever caught yourself saying a phrase like this, God could never use someone like me. I'm too broken. I'm too unimpressive. I'm far too ordinary. I'm untalented. I'm unintelligent. I'm too, insert your own self-deprecating adjective here, right? In fact, I think God may have made a mistake when he made me. If only I was more like so-and-so. I wonder if you've ever uttered one of those phrases. I'll just confess before you. This is, this is my proneness. This is my tendency. This is how pride comes out in my life. And I've, I've said every one of these to myself and out loud. Do you see the pride in these types of statements? as if your own brokenness or my own brokenness is so great that not even God himself could help you, not even God himself could use you as a conduit of his grace, not even God himself who raises the dead could empower you meaningfully for the edification of his body. Could it be that? Just like the person who thinks too highly of himself And it results in arrogance. Could it be that you and I think too highly of ourselves and it results in despair? Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, then by the grace of God, you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit for the edification of his body. This includes you. Number three, therefore, use your gifts, put them to use, steward them well, be active. Let me ask, 
How are you putting your gifts to use for the building up of the body of Christ, for the the building up of the two pillars body? And I'm not just talking about growing our church in numbers or in status in our city, but, but growing up the body of believers here for the edification of our body. Paul is telling the Corinthians, he's releasing them to put their gifts to use. This is absolutely part of thinking about yourself with sober judgment. If you're so hesitant to put your gifts to use that that you refrain from doing so, I would argue that your judgment about yourself might might not be as as sober as it needs to be. And look, if, if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, that's a good place to start. Maybe you would say, look, Adam, I don't know what my spiritual gifts are. Uh, look, that, that is something that's beyond the scope of the sermon, but let, let me say this. You could always take, there, there are lots of great uh, spiritual gift surveys out there, spiritual gift inventories uh, that are designed in an effort to help you to figure out what your spiritual gift or gifts uh, are or, or, or might be. Those aren't necessarily a bad thing, but I, I would argue that that in and of itself is, is insufficient. You see, spiritual gifts are given for the building up of the entire body, not just for the individual Christian. Therefore, I would argue that the proper context for discovering your spiritual gift or gifts is not isolation. It's not you sitting in front of a computer taking a spiritual gift inventory. Instead, it's in the context of a relationship. It's in the context of fellowship. It's in the context of community within the very body of Christ that your gifts are intended to edify. And so if you're not sure what your spiritual gifts are, immerse yourself in relationships and community in the church. Pour yourself out for others. Serve others in our body. Ask them questions along the way. Your gospel community is a great place to start. And along with the community that's around you, you'll begin to discover together what your spiritual gifts are. Four, be realistic as you use your gifts. Paul says, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. If prophecy, then in proportion to our faith. When he, he talks about prophecy here, most likely we're, we're talking about speech that includes some sort of divine insight. I won't go much further than that. As opposed to prophecy spoken by Old Testament prophets, which was authoritative by definition, this sort of prophecy need, needs to be weighed by the church. And, and, and Paul says about this prophecy, use your gift of prophecy according to the faith, according to the ability that you've been given by God. Once again, Thomas Schreiner says this, prophets might be tempted to prophesy beyond the faith given by God, perhaps to impress others with their charismatic ability. They are exhorted, therefore, to prophesy in accordance with the faith that has been given to them. Look, if, if you're using your gifts to impress others around you rather than to build others around you up, there's a good chance you're not exercising your gift in proportion to your faith. There's a good chance that you are exaggerating the gift, not, not exercising it in proportion to the faith that you've been given. Likewise, if you're downplaying your gifts 
for the same reason. There's a good chance. There's a good chance that you're not exercising your gift in proportion to your faith. So be realistic about the amount of faith that you've given in the exercising of your gifts. Fifthly, be you. Be you as you use your gifts. Look at verse 7. We have a series of, of three gifts that Paul hits on here. Service, teaching, exhortation. He says, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, and the one who exhorts in his exhortation. This is kind of like a well-done point, and yet Paul finds, finds it a necessary point to make. If you've been gifted with the gift of service, then put the gift of service to use in serving. If you've been gifted with the gift of teaching, expounding upon the Word of God and its meaning, put this gift to use in the context of teaching. And if you've been gifted with the gift of exhortation, that is a, a, a call to action based upon the teaching of God's Word, put that to use in exhortation. In other words, you don't have to be anyone other than who God has made you to be. Two Pillars doesn't need another Adam. Two Pillars doesn't need another Pastor Todd. Two Pillars doesn't need another Donna or another Rebecca or another Brian or another Marcy. Two Pillars desperately needs you. And we need you to be you, exercising the gifts that God has given you. And so if that gift is serving, then, then serve and exercise that gift. If, if teaching, exercise it in your teaching and so on and so forth. Lastly, number six, be you enthusiastically. Paul writes the one, uh, again, we have another series of gifts the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, this, is, this is a perfect place for Paul to end because you and I might be tempted to, to believe that if we're to exercise sober judgment, if we're to walk in humility, if we're, if we're going to avoid the temptation to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, then, then we have to carry out our ministry among the body, that we have to serve the body, that we have to put our gifts to use in some kind of muted and hidden kind of way. Like, don't put those gifts to use too hard, too enthusiastically. That might be prideful. That might be arrogant. That, that, that might be haughty. But what does Paul do here? He, he calls them to use their gifts enthusiastically to the one who contributes with generosity. Contribute more and more and more and more to the one who leads. Have you been given the, the gift of leadership? Lead with zeal. Lead with enthusiasm to the one who does acts of mercy. Do so cheerfully and gladly and enthusiastically. 
Brothers and sisters, this, this, is, the, this is the Lord's roadmap for, for a church that is not conformed to the self-serving, self-exalting ways of the world, but is being transformed into the humble likeness of Christ. Paul, Paul tells us once again, do, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment. Be humble in the grace of God. Remind yourself where your faith comes from. Remind yourself of where your gift comes from. It comes from God. It's been given to you by the grace of God, not because of your own merit or worth or accomplishments. Be unified in identity. Remind yourself You don't belong to you. You don't belong to yourself, but you belong to Christ. And you belong to the body of Christ. We all are united in one shared identity. That is, we are the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, in the midst of this unified identity, be confident in your diversity. Be confident in who God has made you to be. You have been made uniquely for the benefit of this body. And so be you. And be you enthusiastically. And brothers and sisters, if we can put this, if we can put this into practice by the grace of God, by the grace of God, we won't be susceptible to thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. But we're going to build this body up to be more and more and more like Jesus, our Savior. May he use us in that way. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we uh, are grateful for your grace. We're grateful, Lord, for the favor that you've shown us in the personal work of your Son. Lord, thank you that you've seen it fit to save us to give us a a saving measure of faith. And and what's more, Lord, thank you that you have uh, seen it fit to, to, to gift us as individual members of your body and to use us for the collective benefit of the whole. Lord, guard us from the temptation to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, to become consumed with self. And Lord, keep us sober. Keep us sober in, in our thinking. Lord, as, as we work together in our own unique ways, to build up this body, to make it more and more and more like Jesus. To his glory, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.